First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, you are the one who has made each of us. Lord, you love us with a love that is bigger than we can fathom. And so, Lord, today we pray that you would break through, that you would speak. Father, as only you can, Father, that you would speak to the one who is perhaps hearing your word for the first time today, and you would speak to the one who has walked with you for many, many years. By your Spirit, you would give us today what we each need to hear from you, our God, and we pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I am so thankful that each of you are here uh, today, both those who are a part of our church family and so many of our friends who are here with us today as well. Typically, in our worship service, during this time in our service, when we study the Bible together, we usually go through whole books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse. Uh, But today, and for the next few weeks, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm sure that everyone knows that despite the title of this series, we're really not trying to give you four reasons not to become uh, a Christian. Uh, Those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ have been changed by Him. And we love the Lord, and uh, we know that there is nothing better in this life than knowing the Lord. And so our deepest and our greatest desire for you is that you would also come to know Him, and that you would experience that same life and that same joy that we have found uh, in knowing Christ. So what we're doing in this series is we're taking time over the next several weeks to respond to four of the reasons that are typically given for why uh, some people do not want to become a Christian. And the purpose of this series is really twofold. Uh, On the one hand, uh, I hope that this will be a time of equipping uh, for us, for our church family, to be able to give answers to our friends who have similar questions to these. And then secondly, I believe that there are some of you who are here this morning who have some of these same questions that we're going to talk about today and in the remainder of this series. And I probably, uh, not probably, I certainly uh, will not be able to answer all of your questions and I probably will not even be able to adequately answer the four questions that we are tackling in this series in the time that we have allotted. But I just hope that in the these weeks, I might give you something to think about, and my prayer is that either in these weeks or in the weeks to come, that you would come to know Jesus in a personal way, if you don't already. Now, the first reason that we're tackling today for why uh, some do not want to become a Christian is that Christians are so narrow-minded. How many of you have ever heard that said, that Christians are narrow-minded, and perhaps uh, some of you in here have thought that or still uh, believe that to be the case. And I I looked up the definition of of narrow-minded, and here is what I found. Narrow-minded means having or showing a prejudiced mind as a person's or opinions being biased. And I think particularly this second definition, not receptive to new ideas, having a closed mind. 
Typically, the way that this charge is packaged and laid at the feet of Christians is to say that it is narrow-minded for us to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And some people might add, I mean, what about all of the other world religions that are out there? How could you as Christians be so narrow-minded as to claim that you have an exclusive hold on the truth? And those who would say that would also add that it is more broad-minded to be open to all religions, to say that there is some good in all religions, and that nobody really has an exclusive hold over the truth. I believe that that is the charge that is being laid at the foot of Christians. One of the places that we send mission teams uh, to is the city of Boston. Our church has been uh, helping a, a new church get started there in the Medford area of Boston called Redemption Hill. And uh, I've been up there several times with uh, some of our mission teams. And, of course, when we go up there, we take a day or two for uh, a little sightseeing. It's had so much history uh, that has happened in the city of Boston. And uh, one of the places, of course, in the historic areas in the town of Charlestown and the Bunker Hill uh, monument that uh, is there. I believe we have a picture of that uh, monument. The shape of it is an obelisk, just as the Washington Monument is in D.C., and the Bunker Hill Monument is 221 feet to the top. Uh, you have to go up 294 steps uh, to get all the way uh, to the top and to be able to look out that little window. Uh, I've been to the base of it several times, uh, but because I'm about five knee surgeries deep at this point, uh, I have never walked up to the top. I don't think I have 294 steps in me. Uh, they'd have to get the paramedics, I think, to bring me back down. Uh, but several in our group have walked up to the top. How many of you have ever climbed up to the top of Bunker Hill Monument? Anybody in this room? All right, we need to take a field trip then to go, to go up there. Uh, but I have heard that uh, if you make it to the top, it is just an incredible view uh, of the uh, Boston area uh, as you look out uh, that window. Uh, but, you know, uh, I would love to go up to the top, but, but there really is only that uh, one staircase. There's no, there's no elevator in, in the Bunker Hill Monument. Uh, there, there is no escalator that, that takes you uh, up there. Uh, the only way to get up there is to walk up that one uh, staircase. And, and unless you've got a helicopter or something, if you're going to get to the top, uh, there's only one way to get there, and that's climbing up that one staircase. And, and here's the question I, I just would like for you to consider. Is, is it possible that heaven is like that? What if there is only one way? And here's something else to think about. Would Christians still be narrow-minded to say that there is only one way if there is actually only one way? Or... To put it this way, I, I think that really we would just be narrow-minded if we're wrong. If we're wrong, if there actually are multiple ways to get to God, then of course we should have been more broad-minded about it. But, but if we're right, if there really is just one way, then we're not being narrow-minded to tell you that. We're simply telling you the truth. And the truth just happens to be that just like at the Bunker Hill Monument, there's only one way, one narrow way to get to 
God. Now, I know it may sound more broad-minded to say that there are multiple ways to God, and we may all want there to be uh, multiple ways to get to God. But again, what if that is not actually true? I I don't know about you, but in the end, I'm really not as interested in what sounds broad-minded and what sounds narrow-minded to other people. I'm really, in the end, just interested in what is the truth, What is the truth about God, and what is the truth about me, and what is the truth about how I can know God, and how I can spend eternity with God? That is really what I'm most interested in. And so today, I want to love you enough to tell you what I believe is the truth based on the Word of God. And all together, I want to share three truths with you, and here is the first one. Jesus said that there is only one way. Now, you may not agree with what Jesus said about that, but there's really no doubt that that is what Jesus did say, that there's really only one way and that he is the way. And we're going to look at a few passages in the Bible that clearly teach that. The first one is in Matthew 7. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you would turn there with me, Matthew 7. This is a part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount that comprises Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we're coming towards the end of this sermon at this point. Now, we don't have time to go there, but at the very end of this sermon, at the end of chapter 7, uh, Jesus claims to be the one who is standing there at the end of everything, deciding who enters the kingdom of heaven and who doesn't. And you can read that at the end of this chapter. But those who were listening to him that day on that hillside were not mistaken about that. And that's why it says at the very end of the chapter, he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. This was a very authoritative message where Jesus is claiming to be the one who has the authority, even on Judgment Day itself. But earlier in chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, This is what Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so Jesus talks about two gates and two paths that we can walk down in life, And he says that one of them is broad and wide, and the other one is narrow and confining. And Jesus says that we should go through the narrow gate that leads on to the narrow road. And now here in this passage, Jesus doesn't actually say what that narrow gate is, but he does say over in John chapter 10. Look look at this verse with me. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the narrow gate. And it's narrow because there is only one door. Jesus very clearly says to us here that if you want to be on the road that leads to life, that you have to come through the one gate, the one door that has marked on it Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I know that that does not sit well in our culture today. I mean, after all, we are Americans, right? We like choices, and we like to have a lot of choices, right? We like to have a lot of channels on our TV, and we like to pick the data plan that 
best works for us and our streaming needs, right? We like options. We like to be able to choose what toppings go on our burgers. We like to have options about everything. We don't like to be confined. And so we really don't like all of this only one little narrow gate and I've got to go through that one gate or else talk. We don't like it. But that is what Jesus said, isn't it? He was either telling the truth to us or he wasn't. And so I guess one of the things that I would just say to you is that Christians did not make this up. We may be accused of being narrow-minded, but our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ said that there is one narrow gate that we have to enter to find life. When we say that there's only one way to God, we're just being faithful to what Jesus said right here. And Jesus said that the other way, the broad way, the way that most people are on, leads straight to destruction. Basically, you can get on that road by doing anything except trusting in Jesus as your Savior. You can get on that road by just living for yourself. You can get on that road by living for money, by living for the things of this world. You can get on that road by doing lots of good religious things or by hating religion altogether. You can get on that road by being a philanthropist and giving all of your stuff away or by hoarding all of your stuff for yourself. You can get on that road by doing anything except for trusting Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, because according to him, he's the only way to get off of the broad road and to get on to the narrow road. He is the doorway. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where it says that. If you turn over with me to John chapter 14, you can see that stated even more clearly. These words are from the night before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus knew that this was his last night with his 12 disciples. He knew that the next day when they would see him die or hear of his death, that they were going to be afraid. They were going to be discouraged. They were going to be confused. And so this is what he says to them. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And he was speaking of the preparation that he was going to make the very next day, preparing through his death and through his resurrection a way for us to go to the Father. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the Gospel of John, there are seven what are known as I am statements. Seven times where Jesus says, I am something. We already looked at one of them just a minute ago when Jesus said, I am the door. Earlier in John, he's already said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. And here in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And the emphasis here is on how exclusive Jesus is with the language that he uses. Notice he doesn't say, I am one of the ways. I am one of the truths. I am one of the life. He's making a pretty bold claim here. He's saying, first of all, I am the way. And then to make sure that we don't miss his point, at the end of the verse, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying there's only one point of access to the Father, and that is if you come through me. And then he says, I am the truth. We, we live in a, in a world today, right, where we don't know what the truth is. We have an election this week. Everyone on every side is accusing the other of fake news, right? Everything is fake news. We don't know what the truth is. Well, Jesus said, you can know what the truth is. I am the truth. He is the answer to Pilate's question, the man Pilate who asked Jesus at his trial, what is the truth? What is truth? Jesus says, I am truth. If you find me, you find what is true. And then Jesus says, I am the life. I'm the one who has life in myself, and I am the one who gives eternal life to anyone who comes to me. Jesus could not be any more clear or any more exclusive here. He claims to be the only way, the only truth, the only life, and the early leaders of the church repeated that as they shared the good news with others. In Acts 4 and verse 12, Peter says this, speaking about Jesus, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now maybe you've heard all of these verses from the Bible and you know that they all very clearly say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but your response is kind of, well, you know, so what? I mean, you know, who cares if that is what the Bible says? You Christians are really just a bunch of simpletons for believing in a book that was written thousands of years ago by a bunch of old dead guys. But you know, oftentimes I've found that when people say something like that, very often they haven't read much of the Bible personally at all. And if that's the case, I would just challenge you to, to read the Bible, to begin, to begin reading it. Even if you don't believe the Bible at this point, just begin to read it. It is, after all, the world's number one bestseller, has been for some time. And so just to be an intellectually well-rounded person, you really should read the Bible. Now, because I believe that the Bible actually is the Word of God, and because I believe that the Bible is living, and I believe that God wrote the Bible through the pen of the 40 authors who authored the books of the Bible, I believe that as you open it and as you begin to read it, that the God who made you will begin to speak to you as you read His Word. Maybe you say, well, you know, even if it was at one point God's Word, it's been copied so many times throughout the centuries that it's, it's not reliable. One writer said that it's like playing the old game telephone. You ever played that game where, you know, you sit in a circle and you whisper something to the person next to you and then they whisper it to the person next to them and they whisper it to the person next to them and it goes all the way around the circle and eventually becomes pretty comical because it changes, right? You know, the first person, you know, will, will say to the person next to them, row your boat and the next guy says, raise the moat and the next guy says, root beer float and, and by the time it gets around, it, it's totally changed and, and maybe you think that, you know, that's what's happened with 
with the Bible. And if you think that, then, then I would just challenge you to study the evidence about that. Study the evidence about the way that the Bible has been copied, the number of ancient manuscripts that we have, how well-preserved they are. There, there's a lot of evidence to refute that theory that the Bible has been lost in translation if you're willing to read it and if you're willing to study it. But, but for today, I, I guess that I would just ask you this. Do you think that it's possible that the God who made us wanted to reveal himself to us and that he did it in writing. Is that possible? Is it possible that the God who made us wanted to reveal himself to us and that he did it in writing? And then if if that is possible, is it possible that the God who could do that, who wanted to reveal himself to us and so revealed it to us in writing, is it possible that that God was able to preserve that writing so that thousands of years later we could still know what he said? And if that is possible, then why not give the Bible a try? Why not read it for yourself and see what you think? And when you do, one of the claims that you're going to be confronted with is this claim that Jesus makes that he is the Son of God, that he has all authority on heaven and on earth, and that he is the only way to the Father when this life is over. That's the first truth I want to share. Jesus said that there was only one way and that he is it. Here's the second truth. It is not wrong for Christ followers to say what Christ said, that there's only one way. It's not wrong for Christ followers to say what Christ said, that there's only one way. Now again, you may not be a Christ follower here yet, and you may not agree that Jesus is the only way, but I hope that you would agree that for someone who is a follower of Christ, who does believe that this is the Word of God, that it wouldn't be wrong for us to simply repeat what our Savior said, that He is the only way. I mean, after all, who are we as Christians to hear Jesus saying in John 14, 6, I am the way, and to say back to him, well, Jesus, I mean, let's not get carried away. I mean, you're, you know, you're a way, right? But let's not be so narrow-minded, Jesus, right? I mean, there's probably other ways. I mean, who, who are we to say that to Christ as a follower of Christ when he has very clearly said to us, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so when we say that, we're simply being faithful to him. He makes very exclusive claims. And as Robbie Zacharias has pointed out, even though Christians often kind of get dinged for being exclusivists, we aren't the only ones who make exclusive claims. Judaism claims to be the exclusive right way to God. Islam claims to be the exclusive right way to God. Even Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, even though they are seen as being more open and more embracing of new ideas, They make truth claims that they will not relinquish for anything. Hinduism, for example, they worship millions of gods. And so, yes, they have no problem adding one more to that number. 
but they aren't going to surrender, for example, what they teach about someone being reincarnated when they die. They believe that that is true, and they will not relinquish it. And so that's why when people say things like, well, I pretty much believe that all religions are the same. I, I, I want to ask the questions, well, which, which ones are the same? Is Satanism the same? What about the people that years ago killed themselves so that they could hop on the back of Hales Bop's comet and ride to glory? Are, are they the same? Do they believe the same? And so many people will say, well, not those ones, not the crazy ones, but, you know, the main ones. Right? The main ones are all the same. But, but with respect, they aren't the same either. Different religions of the world are saying very different things, things that can't all be true because they contradict each other. Either we are reincarnated as the Hindus teach, or one day after this one life is over, we stand before God and we live forever in heaven or hell as the Bible teaches, or something else, but both the Hindus and the Christians can't both be right. They teach something different. Either the Quran is right that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, or the Bible is right that he did die and that he did rise again. But it can't be both. And there's a thousand other things, other examples that could be given. All the religions aren't saying the same thing, and in many cases they're saying the opposite thing. And that's where some people will say, well, maybe you know, all of them get a part of it right, but nobody gets it all right. And the famous uh, illustration for that viewpoint is the story about the blind men and the elephant. Maybe you have come across that. Some people say that it's a Buddhist story. Some people say that it's a Hindu story. But either way, the story is the same. You have a bunch of blind guys who are standing beside an elephant. Here's a, a picture of it here. And they don't know that it's an elephant. All they know is what is in front of them. And so one of them is standing at the side of the elephant, and he's touching the side of the elephant, and he thinks that it's a wall. But one of them is touching the tusk of the elephant, and he thinks that it is a spear. One of the blind men is touching the tail of the elephant, and he thinks that it is a snake. And, and, and one is touching the ear, and he thinks that it's a giant fan, and, and, and so on. But in the story, since none of them are able to see the whole elephant, none of them get it right. And in this story, the blind men are compared to followers of different religions. And the person telling the story says that, like in this parable, nobody has the whole truth. Everybody just has a piece of the truth. And, and admittedly, there's something appealing about that, isn't there? It seems kind of humble to, to say that, yes, I'm just one person and Christians are just one group, and so we probably don't see the whole truth. We probably just see a part of it. Just It sounds more humble to say that, but really it's not humble at all. The problem with this story, as Randy Newman points out, is its own arrogance. If you think about it, the only way the storyteller could know that all the blind men were wrong is if he sees the whole elephant. Right? Only if the storyteller can see the whole elephant can he know that nobody can see the whole elephant. 
He's claiming to have a position of superiority, a position where he's able to take it all in one view, which is what the story says that nobody can do. And so in the story, religious people are seen and described as being arrogant because they can't see the whole elephant when the non-religious person is saying by telling the story that they can see the whole elephant and that we are all a bunch of fools. But really, here is what we claim as Christians. We're we're not claiming to be smarter than anybody else. We're not claiming that we have figured it all out on our own. What we're claiming is that someone has seen the whole elephant. And that someone is God. That, That God, who made us, has seen the whole elephant and has told us about it. That that's what we're claiming. We're not claiming that we know everything. We don't know everything. The Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. There's tons of things that we don't know. And we'll go on for all eternity and we'll never reach a place of omniscience like the Lord is omniscient. All we're claiming is that the God who made us, the God who made this world, has seen the elephant, has told us about it, and that we know enough from what he has revealed to us to know how to be saved. And to know that one day we will be with him forever. I know many people would still say, okay, well maybe that's what you believe because that's what the Bible says, but it's still unloving to say that to other people. It's still unloving to to, to say that other people are wrong. And and on one level I get that and I I hear that, but, but here is the thing. It's not unloving to tell someone that what you believe is true. It is unloving not to. If if you find something that is truly wonderful, if you find something that changes your life, something that you believe everyone else desperately needs, how could you not tell the people that you claim to love about it? How could you keep that to yourself? Or worse, how could you see someone that you know desperately needs this thing going off in a completely wrong direction, actually the opposite direction from that thing, and how could you not say anything about it? That's not a loving thing to do. Now this is a silly illustration, so I'm just giving you fair warning about that. But if I was asked by someone to give directions to the best ice cream place in town, I would send them to the only place there is to send them. The one, the only, Dell's Freeze. That's right. Amen. I mean, where else could I send them? If you're here from Melbourne, you know that that place is a landmark because I have been there many times, many, many times. I know the directions to get from here to there. But what if someone came up to me and said, I want to go to Dell's Freeze, and so I'm going to go out, I'm going to get on I-95, and I'm going to drive 400 miles to the north and 300 miles to the west. And what if I heard that and I said, nothing. I I know where they want to go. I know that sweetness is awaiting them if they get there but I don't say anything about the fact that they're going totally, completely in the wrong direction. But our culture says that when it comes to faith and when it comes to spirituality, that we shouldn't say anything. 
that it's wrong to say anything, that if we do say something, it just proves that we are narrow-minded, that we are exclusive. Who are we, after all, to say that we know anything, that we know the way? But again, if we believe what the Bible says, if we believe that God who made us loves us and wants to know us, if we believe that we have all sinned against God, that there's nothing we can do on our own to have a relationship with God, but that God took the initiative to send his son Jesus to the earth, that he lived a perfect life that you and I have not been able to live, that he went to the cross, that he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin, for the sins of the world, that he rose again on the third day, that he is at the right hand of the Father, that if we would turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, that he would come into our life, that he would redeem us and change us and transform us, that we would have a new life here and an eternal life with him forever. If we really believe that, how can we not share that? If what you believe, you really believe, then you will share it. And it's not unloving to share it. It would be unloving not to. But I think in our culture, one of the biggest reasons why people have a problem with Christians saying that what they believe is true and why Christians are seen as narrow-minded for doing that is that for many people, it's, it's just arrogant to think that you can know anything at all. In our culture today, it's, it's arrogant to think that you can even know what is the truth. Who, who are you? Who are we? Who is anybody to think that you know what the truth really is? That's what our culture would say. But here's the Bible's response to that. It's not arrogant to believe that you can know what is true. According to the Bible, we aren't in the dark. God has not left us in the dark. We can know what is true, not because we're smarter, but because it has been revealed in his word. Back in John 14, Jesus told Thomas in verse 4, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. He was saying that we can know the way because we can know him. And as he said two verses later in in verse 6, I am the way. And so if we know him, we know the way. It is something that can be known. In John 8, verse 32, Jesus said, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The truth is something we can know, and truth is liberating. But for many years now, our culture has rejected the notion of absolute truth. That is what Alan Bloom has said in his book, The Closing of the American Mind. Listen to this. He writes, the danger in our society is not error, but intolerance. That's what our culture said. The danger is intolerance. Relativism is necessary to openness, and this is the virtue, the only virtue, relativism, which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to teaching. The true believer is the real danger. The study of history and of culture teaches us that all the world was crazy in the past. Men always thought that they were right, and that led to wars and persecutions and slavery and xenophobia and racism and chauvinism. And then listen to this. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is to not think that you are right at all. And this is what I see happening on college campuses all across America today. A lot of people, especially younger people, have been trained 
by their teachers and also by their peers to not use the words I know anymore. I know is arrogant. So you're not allowed to say I know something. You're barely even allowed to say I believe something. What If you listen to most young people speak, what, what usually they say is this, I feel like this. Well, you know, I feel like, well, I feel like, because who can argue with what you feel like, right? You feel like something, the other person feels like something else, but, but you can both be right. And a writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton saw this coming a long time ago. He wrote this almost a hundred years ago, and it's even more true today than it was then. Listen to this. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and has settled on the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself and undoubting about the truth. But this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he should not assert himself. And the part he doubts is exactly the part that he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. Listen to this. Every day one comes across somebody who says that, of course, his view may not be the right one. Chesterton says, of course, his view must be the right one, or it's not his view. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. And I think Chesterton is exactly right. That is the culture that we live in today. And in this culture, where nobody will say, I believe anything, and no one will say, I know anything, Christians are seen as arrogant and narrow-minded to say that what we know is true. But by God's grace, we do know what is true. Because it has been revealed to us, we can know it. We can know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so no matter what our culture says, we need to be able to rise up and say with the Apostle Paul these words, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Now, when I say that we're not being arrogant to say that we know what is true, I'm not saying that Christians are never guilty of being arrogant. I hope you hear me on that. Many of us at times can be and are. And some of us walk around as if we did figure all of this out on our own, as if we are somehow smarter than everyone else. And there is no place for that in the Christian life at all. Because what the Bible clearly tells us is that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. That we were blind. And that the Lord, by his grace, took the blinders off our eyes that we might see the glory of the light of Christ. And that is not something that I did, and it is not something that you did. It is something that the grace of God did. And that should produce a humility in the way that we speak with those who do not believe. It is good to be concerned about arrogance. God hates arrogance. But church, don't let the world define for you what arrogance is. Let God define that for you. The Bible does not say it's arrogant for you to have convictions about what you believe. It's not arrogant for you to say, I know whom I have believed. What is arrogant 
is for us as created beings to rise up against our creator and his word and to say to him, even though you say that your son Jesus is the only way, I know better because I'm more enlightened. That's actually what arrogance is. But it's not arrogant to to believe that you can know what is true and it's not unloving to tell people what you have found it would be unloving not to do that. And so because I love each of you, I want to make sure that I share this with you before we're through. Number three, the way is a person. And meeting him will change your life. If you're here today and you have questions about Christianity and what it means to follow Christ, I I hope you hear my heart today. I I want to give you some things to think about, but my goal today is really not to win an argument. My goal today is to introduce you to a person who has changed my life. In John 14, 6, we've kind of been focusing on the word the, you know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But for just a second, I want us to hear that verse again, but focus on the word I. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. The way is a person whose name is Jesus, and if you meet him, when you meet him, he will change your life forever. There's no one more beautiful. There's no one more loving. There's no one more gracious. There's no one more kind than the Lord Jesus who died for you and who rose Again, and he is the savior that we all desperately need. Because there's no way for us to get to the Father except through him. You know, earlier I showed this picture of Bunker Hill and kind of talked about that one staircase inside of it and how that's an example of the fact that heaven is like that. There's only one way to get to God. But the problem with that illustration is that the staircase to heaven has more steps in it than we can climb. And we're not able to get there on our own. There's nobody in this room who's able to walk up that staircase to get to heaven. We can't do it. We can't do it by being good enough. None of us are perfect, and that's the standard. We can't get there by going to church enough. We can't get there by giving away enough stuff that the Bible says it's not by works that we do that any single one of us are saved. So I don't want us to leave here with the impression that I need to climb up this staircase to get to God because that's not how it works. We aren't able to walk up that staircase to God. And so the Bible says Jesus walked down that staircase to us. That's why he came. To die for our sins on the cross to pay a price that we were not able to pay and then to rise again on the third day. And now all that we have to do is to come to him open-handed in brokenness over our sin and our rebellion against God, to come before him and to receive the forgiveness and the love and the grace that he wants to give us. If we would open up our mind and open up our heart today, to receive it, and then we will begin a journey through life with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe the Lord's been speaking to you for some time now, and you're ready today. You know, this is the day I, I need to do that. I need to come and meet Jesus in a personal way. 
in just a minute when we begin to sing, don't wait for anybody else. You come and share that with one of the pastors who is here at the front. But maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're somewhere on that journey. I just encourage you, keep coming, keep listening, pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it for yourself and ask God to speak to you through it because, friend, I assure you, He is big enough to answer all of our questions. And I pray at the end of your questions that you will discover a Savior who is ready to embrace you with open arms. Because he did make you, and he does love you, and he does have a purpose for your life, but you'll only find it through one way, in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you love us enough to, see the, to tell us the truth. I thank you, God, that you have seen the whole elephant that you know this world that you have made, you know each of us, that you have knit together even in our mother's womb, that you love us, that you have a plan and purpose for us. Thank you, God, that you did not leave us in the dark, but you have revealed yourself to us and we can know you. We can walk through life with you. And God, I pray for anyone in this room that needs to take that step of faith today, open up their heart to you that they would take that step. In Jesus' name.